Hello, listeners. Since you've clicked on this episode, I must assume that you're either a Game of Thrones fan or simply curious why this random non-movie-related episode title showed up in our podcast feed. Well, a few of us here at Feelin' Film are pretty big fans of the show, and this week's episode was such a big deal that we are bursting to talk about it. And this is really the result of that desire more than anything. It's an impromptu experiment of sorts. We have no idea where it's going to go from here. We just want to have this conversation and figured we'd let you join in and hear it. This is on the episode called The Long Night, also referred to on social media as The Battle of Winterfell, and we hope that you're going to enjoy this. Um, spoilers abound for Season 8, Episode 3. You have been warned. I don't know how you've existed on social media if you are on social media, because spoilers were out there instantaneously. But if you haven't seen it, get to it. It is definitely worth watching. In case you're new here and not familiar with my voice, I'm Aaron, one of the hosts of the show, and with me are two of our contributors, the mysterious Miss Aaron Hundley. Guten Tag. And the handsome Sir Jeremy Calcara. Hello. Now, guys, I guess the best place to start, honestly, is just to give some perspective, really, on where we are coming at with our Game of Thrones fandom, because... It's a little bit odd for us to be in this movie podcast world and suddenly drop one TV show recap in the middle of a season out of nowhere. But this was a pretty big episode, and we've all been following the show, I think, since its beginning. But I'm going to let you guys tell me, Aaron, I want to start with you. Where, or, or not where, what is your past with Game of Thrones leading up to now? So... Some of you who know me personally may know that I have a very strange rule when it comes to television. I very rarely watch TV shows that are currently in production. My personal stance is I get, this is the worst show to use as an example, but I get very attached to fictional characters to the point where it might be a problem. So I don't like getting attached to shows that I don't know where the end is because the minute you get attached, all of a sudden a network pulls a show and it gets canceled. I'm not ready for that heartbreak. So I like going in knowing that I have an end in sight and I can binge watch at my own pace. Um, that being said, Game of Thrones, when it started, I believe in 2010 or 2009, was obviously, you know, a pretty big success. It had a little bit of a build around it. Um, but coming up around season three is when I happened to catch an episode that my best friend Carrie was watching um, at her home. I was helping her around the house and I saw it and I literally just stopped what I was doing and stood in the middle of her living room and watched the rest of the episode while it was on there. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I don't know what the heck is going on. There's a lot happening in this episode, but now I need to go all the way back to the beginning and start and catch up. And that that was how it began. I watched three and a half seasons in less than like, I think it was like less than a week and a half. I pride myself on my binge watching skills, but yeah, I mean, it's aside from Doctor Who, Game of Thrones is the only show that I actually wait for episodes on. Well, that's pretty awesome. I, I'm actually curious then, Jeremy, did you start watching the show right away when season one released or are you like Aaron and did you come to it later on uh, after the show had already kind of been on for a little while? Um, No, I started watching the show basically because of FOMO. And people were talking about it, and I had no idea what they were talking about. So I wanted to be part of the conversation. And that was right about 
the Red Wedding, when everybody kind of started exploding, talking about it everywhere. That was, what, the second to last episode of season three. So I was ready to go caught up by the start of season four is when I started watching it week to week. But up until then, no, I binge watched the first three seasons. Wow. So actually really similar then for both of you guys. And then you've both been watching it ever since pretty religiously or have you taken any breaks? Can you take a break? (laughs) (laughs) Well, by break, I mean, is there any season that you haven't watched in real time since? No. No, I even broke my lint fast to watch the first episode of this season. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Of all the shows, Jeremy, of all the shows. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) You know, it's weird because I actually then have the longest tenure as far as where I started with the show. I was reading the books before the show existed. So I was actually one of those people. I found out about the novels. I was really big into reading at the time. And I think I was maybe two novels deep when the show started. I actually just updated my Facebook picture to one that was taken about eight years ago before the first season when I was sitting on the Iron Throne. It had come to Philadelphia traveling, and I got to go take a photo on it. Still really cool experience. And that was before the phenomenon. So I watched the first couple seasons, and then... Due to traveling and moving across the country a bunch, I ended up falling off. And I did not watch, I think, two or three seasons in the middle at all in real time. And I ended up coming back to the show, I think, around season five and binging it back to the point where I was caught up. And then I've been on track ever since and just as obsessed. I I will say also, when it comes to history with regards to books versus show, that's always a big thing in the Game of Thrones world, when you're having talks with other fans. I gotta be honest, I did not finish the series yet. I got through the first four books, I believe. There's like five or six, there's five now, six now. And I got through the first four, and then I fell off. And so the show, I really feel, is my personal Game of Thrones. Are either of you different than that? Um, I started reading the books maybe like a year ago and i'm currently like two-thirds of the way through the first one (laughs) because it takes a while (laughs) yeah i usually wait for movies so i don't have to read so yeah it does take a while yeah i don't know it's hard to be motivated to do the books when i know that i already know more now than what book readers knew when they started you know because it hasn't even been written yet what they're doing now I think the thing with the books though is that even i mean george rr martin he's satan let's just be honest he's (laughs) definitely satan he's openly said that he wants to die before he finishes writing the book so that nobody ever actually knows how it ends i tried with the books like three or four times and my add can't cut it like if you watch the show and you're trying to watch the show and you're wondering how people can keep track of all of these varying storylines and plot points especially in the early seasons when you don't really see how everything is going to lay out and intersect it's a billion times harder in the books a billion times harder and so for me like I feel terrible. I mean, anybody that knows me knows how much of a bookworm I am or a book dragon. And it's just it killed me. But I was like, I can't dedicate the mental space it takes for these books with like between my Etsy shop and my job. Like I just I I couldn't dedicate the mental space for it. But the fact I think it's an important move that they made with HBO to weave the like it has the same bones as the book but a lot of the details have been changed so that it does feel like you said Aaron like it is your own personal game of thrones because at this point I think with Danny especially they caught up to her 
part in the book by like season five. So everything that's happened after that was never written into the books. So it's like you really like at this point, it's anybody's game because nobody really has any idea where the story could go. Now, I'm sure he's going to pull other elements into this final season from the other novels. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's not following a track. It's not like the Lord of the Rings novels or Harry Potter, where you, you know what the end game is, all the books are out and everything like that. Like this could literally go anyway. And I think it, it's an interesting take for a, uh, a series to do that, especially one that has such a dedicated fan base. And I think it's very interesting. Yeah, me too. And I think that from what I've experienced as far as knowing people who watch the show, when you talk about this around the water cooler at work or at parties and just church, anywhere you have people that watch this, this TV show, you will find that probably a majority of them are not book readers. And so I think that it is in a way Martin is really written himself into a corner here because I don't think that the book is going to have the same effect as it would have obviously before the show ended because once the show ends I, I don't think that people who haven't read the series are going to care about how martin goes back and ends his books you know what i mean they're not going to go read them all of a sudden so unless he, they hate the ending unless they case, hate yeah they want to go back that's and true and get a different like one that, that appeals mm -hmm. to them more yeah i'm actually experiencing this similar thing right now where i really don't care how martin ends the books because i love the show so much but i do care about this other series called the king killer chronicles you may or may not know what it is, but it's written by a guy named Patrick Rothfuss. I've heard really good things. It is like my second favorite fantasy behind Lord of the Rings. It is a phenomenal series, and he's done the same thing. We got like two and a half books, two books and a novella, and then he's like stuck on the third book of the final book of the trilogy, and now it's been optioned to a big package with movies, a Showtime series partially being written and produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda because music is a big part of the series. It's going to be awesome and a video game, all kinds of stuff. And that's all in production. And yet he hasn't finished the series yet. So um, it's sadly starting to go that route. And it's just a weird comparison. But I digress. So here we are. It's one of those things where I just I feel like everybody's so quick to capitalize on something. And they're wanting to just make as much money off of it as possible and cap like and it. And part of me, like it hurts my heart because I'm like, if you're a true fan of something and you absolutely love it, like you're going to love it for the next like 10, 15 years. You're going to like, I can't wait to read my future children, Harry Potter, like between my having to answer a million questions about the tattoos I have about it. Like I'm a fan for life. Like it is a huge part of my life. And so I feel like, the need to capitalize on these things. And I'm like, you have no idea if the stuff that you're cutting out of this movie or this series is actually going to be important six books down the line. Like, you have no idea. Just wait. People will still love it. <laughs> patience. You're <laughs> you're saying patience, which is not yes. really a word that we use in the and It's not a word that I use in my, <laughs> in my life, but with books to movies, yes. Yeah, I hear you. Well, we are cutting out the first two episodes of this season. We haven't done any other podcasts on them. Um, I will jump in real quick and just say that I really enjoyed the first two episodes that led up to this third battle that we kind of all knew was coming. Specifically, episode two, I think, is one of my favorite episodes of Game of Thrones ever. It is so much character development. There's just so much dramatic weight in the lead up to the battle for me. And I was talking about this um, with Patrick last night when we recorded our episode on Avengers Endgame, how I have discovered recently that I think I'm 
more all about the journey than I am about the destination. I love the buildup to the finale, and the finale almost inevitably always will leave me underwhelmed because I just like the idea of being excited about what's coming. And so it was a lot like that for me um, going into this one. I was kind of worried about that, but I was also very hyped for this Battle of Winterfell, right? That's supposed to be the biggest, most expensive cinematic, longest cinematic battle ever filmed with regards to TV or movies. I mean, that's a lot of expectations for us going into it. So, Jeremy, I'll start with you. What did you, how was you feeling leading up to this episode? Like, what was your mind like coming into it? I'm like you. I've really liked the first couple of episodes of this season so far. And that scene around the, the around the fireplace in episode two, to me, is as good of a scene as anything else in the whole series. From, you know, Brienne being knighted to them singing to Tormund just being awesome and talking about, you know, being nursed by a giant or whatever. I was kind of dreading it. I think we can talk about this a little bit later, but I do kind of feel like I kind of feel like I don't fear for the deaths of the big crowd favorites anymore because I feel like they, I don't know, it, it's, it seems not quite as bad as like, Walking Dead, when I first started watching The Walking Dead, like literally you felt like anybody could die any week. But by the end of season two, you kind of knew, okay, these people are just, they're fine. You know, they're going to find a way out of it. And I'm kind of starting to feel like that. I didn't necessarily feel like anybody big was going to die, that they'd probably throw us a few more minor characters that maybe we like. So I wasn't, I guess I wasn't as apprehensive about it as I guess the rest of my Twitter feed was or my Facebook feed was, but I was excited for it to see what they have. I don't necessarily care that people don't die. I like all the people that didn't die, you know, but uh, I wasn't as apprehensive about it as I feels like most people were. What about you, Aaron? Were you nervous at all? Um, Every Sunday, I feel like I should take a Xanax before sitting down on my couch just in case. As I previously stated, I get far too attached to fictional characters. I may or may not have actually had a full-blown panic attack and needed my inhaler uh, after the Red Wedding. So I take everything with a grain of salt. And while I definitely understand why fans were upset at the lack of deaths, which seems like a very strange thing to be upset about, Like, they built this episode up to be this fantastic battle, which it was. And I think that the thing people were holding on to was, this is a battle. Like, people have to die. It's a battle. Without thinking, this is Game of Thrones. They're playing the long game. Like, while there have been a few episodes where several major characters die, aside from Red Wedding, usually it's just one-offs where there's, like, some kind of fight and then somebody dies. Some kind of fight and then two people die. I would say Red Wedding and I can't remember the name of the episode, but when Cersei just blew up the High Septum, Blackwater, the Sparrow, Blackwater, Battle of Blackwater, yeah. Like the, oh, oh no 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 that no, was the no, first one yeah that was the first yeah. one you're talking about the second time the wildfire <laughs> yeah the dragon the dragon fire with uh the Sept, Mar- yeah. Marjorie and everything like that yeah so I mean aside from that like I went in expecting I thought another P one or major character would die but. I think that people aren't giving Barrick enough credit, and that's that's a little upsetting to me because I absolutely loved his character. And after losing Thoros, 
last season, I knew we had to lose Barrick this season. So like there were just there were a lot of things that added up. Like like let's be honest, Jorah, like four seasons passed when he should have died. Right. Like for sure. At, th- at this point, like dying in the friend zone, we all knew it was going to happen. So just accept it and dying in the arms. Like I said it on Twitter, but I was like dying in the arms of the woman he loves. I just imagine her whispering to him like you were my best friend. And then he just gives up. But it's just one of those things where there was a lot of buildup to this episode. But I feel like the buildup for me was more for the battle, not the buildup for who was going to die. And I think that that was the mentality that a lot of fans went into it with instead of the buildup of this is just going to be an insanely epic battle. But the biggest letdown for me was if you go all the way back to episode one, the whole show opens up with White Walker battle. Like the the very first episode, the very first thing that you see is an issue or a fight between regular people, wildlings and crows and White Walkers. So you, the whole show has been kind of pitting two I don't want to say villainous, but like the closest thing to villainous storylines is, is this truly about the Game of Thrones or is this about fighting against the White Walkers? So it's one of those things where I felt like at times it was way more thrown. At times it was way more White Walkers. And with all of the buildup last season pretty much just being straight up about the White Walkers, it just feels like, okay, we have three episodes left now. I guess now we'll go back to the Game of Thrones. Like, I felt like it should have been almost the other way around. Like, the Game of Thrones came second to the White Walkers only be- only because that's how... I see your look on your face, Aaron. <laughs> only because that's how they started the show. If they had started the show more about a battle for the throne, then I would feel like this is bringing that to a culmination. But because they started with White Walkers, I feel like we should have had the battle for the throne and then faced this and this been the Great War. That is fair. And I've actually seen something on social media this week that kind of hinted or or hit on what you're saying. They were talking about how, you know, the first book in the book series is called Game of Thrones. The book series is not called Game of Thrones. The book series is called A Song of Ice and Fire, which is the overarching concept of, right, the Lord of Light, the dragons and fire versus the White Walkers and the Night King and the ice and the winter. That's the big picture. Right. And so you're, you're absolutely right. I think that the show has definitely focused in more on the throne battle and the politicking, politicking and fighting, infighting for who's going to be in power more so than the Night King. He's just become like this antagonist, this extra antagonist that almost is making it harder for them to fight yeah. each other. So I personally love it. I was saying that I'm kind of glad. I think that. I would rather it end this way and just have them out of the way now because I want to get back to that intrigue. And I'm, I went into this expecting a lot of deaths and kind of wanting them too in that sadistic way. But I'm, I'm happy. Like Jeremy, like you said, you know, you like these characters. I'm glad now that we get to see some of the interactions between who's left and Cersei and what's going to happen with the issue of who's actually going to be in power in this world without this extra threat from afar. I, I do think that they back themselves into a corner though, because they, they were in a place where to get rid of the night King had to be this epic thing. And for me, I might've done myself a disservice. I went back and I watched some of the old battles this past weekend. I watched the battle of the bastards. I rewatched Helm's deep. 
from the Lord of the Rings, kind of to get myself in this headspace. Oh, I, I was like, you know how Seif is not Game yeah, of Thrones, Yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> of course. But, like, this is nothing like them. Mm-hmm. And, and there were lighting issues that people are legit upset about. There is a coherency issue that some will argue is be intentional, that is meant to, I think, pull us into that frenzied state of the characters not knowing where things are, being overrun by zombies, um, just completely out of sorts. But it's hard to follow. It's hard to mm. know what's happening to people at times. And none of that is an issue in other major epic battle scenes that I've seen. They are filmed and shot in such a way that is edited where you always can see and know what is happening. And so this was just a big difference tonally for me. Do you watch any of the inside the episodes and stuff like that afterward? I don't. I I did just for this week was the first time. Okay. So it was very intentionally shot. Like a couple of the things that you mentioned I have heard the whole too dark thing all day today, and I'm sorry, I watched this for the first time on two very terrible computer monitors from that look like they're from like the 90s, and I had to time code within one-tenth of a second and recognize when an actor's face came on the screen for work. If I can do that on POS computer monitors, then you either need a new TV or you need to adjust it from the standard settings that you bought it with. Like I can watch, I watched the entire episode literally on terrible computer monitors and didn't have a single issue with trying to figure out who was where or what was happening. I then watched it on a giant screen TV that we have in our living room and I still didn't have any problems with it. So the lighting issues, like people need to just check their settings and then rewatch it and see if it's okay. A bunch of people commented on things like that. They were like, I adjusted my settings from the general stuff that it came with and it was fine after that. Yeah, it was too dark for me, but. My kids lost my damn remote, so I couldn't uh, I couldn't find it to fix it. <laughs> so that was my own fault. It wasn't the show's fault. But with you saying like the the way that it was shot, where you didn't really know where people were, the reason why I think that's intentional is because when like after watching this now, I would like to go back and watch those other battles that you talked about because it seems way more like you're a part of the battle, and that to me is what drove my adrenaline up while I was watching it is because. When you see these other movies that really tend to film from above or behind the crowd so that you can see everything that's going on in the battle, when you're in the middle of a fight, you have no idea what's happening. And so, like, those moments where you're, like, right next to Arya's face as she's, like, slashing through whites or the very last they, – they talk about in a little inside Game of Thrones thing where they break it into three acts. And that final act where John is going through the whole castle trying to get to Bran – and he's passing everybody he knows and loves. And he sees that, like, Sam is being attacked. And, you know, Tormund, the love of my life, is being, you know, standing on a pile of dead bodies next to Gendry. And it's like he has to leave all of those people as he just keeps making his way and getting stopped. And those continuous shots are so beautifully done because you can just you feel the adrenaline of like I, you almost feel claustrophobic because there's always something going on. And mm-hmm. yeah, while you may not know where everybody is, that's what a battle would be like, is you have no idea who is under what pile of bodies or where to turn that isn't covered in blood and guts. Like, 
it's absolute chaos and mayhem. And while I get that that's not what everybody would want from a battle, I feel like it was very intentionally done and well filmed to the point where like I had so much stomach acid. I needed like four tums when I was done. <laughs> would, Jeremy, would you agree with Aaron? Did, did it work that way for you or were you on the more of the side of like not following the action? Um, my only complaint, I guess, about following the action is I felt like the stuff on the dragons with the chasing of the dragons was kind of hard to follow who was on what dragon and unless there's blue fire coming out of somebody's mouth. But I agree. Um, I, I think that part, just the air battle, I don't I, I don't I don't know who could film that well. <laughs> it just seems like a, a fool's errand to, you know, to harp on that, I guess. But um, but yeah, no, I thought the rest of it exactly like she said, it made you feel like you were there. I thought the lack of lighting at the beginning with just the waves of zombies just overtaking the Dothraki and their lit up swords was brilliant and just sort of heightened the fear of the unknown and what these what these things are and what they can do and just the sheer numbers of them. So, yeah, I guess I'm I'm on board with Aaron 100 percent. So I actually am, too. I was kind of stating some of the criticisms I've heard because I was hoping we would debunk them at least from our perspectives it worked for me too and for the same reasons like i was full of anxiety the entire time and what i really really appreciated about this episode was the consistent waves of some sort of act taking place that gave you a bit of hope a bit of a reason to think okay this is something that could help and then quickly seeing that go bad and the slow dissolution of the forces. You know, we start off this battle in the way that so many battles start off, so many epic scenes where you're watching the lead up to the battle. I I thought it was amazing. You know, we start with, I think it's, is it Tyrion or Sam? I can't remember which one we start with, but we start with one of those two characters and they're walking through the key. Sam. And then it, it like passes off almost like a tag to another character that he passes and then another character. And we kind of like get these different perspectives of what people might actually be doing as they're preparing for this battle. It was really, really immersive for me. And I totally dig that. And especially the second act of the film where it's kind of inside the keep with Arya, I felt like it was a survival horror movie or video game that was being played. And we were in control of Arya to some extent, like following her every movement, panning just with her. And it was it was terrifying. Um, the suspense was there. And I, I think that that's what some of these people who wanted more deaths are missing. Because we expected main character deaths, we were so much more on edge in those moments because we knew that at this point in the show... Anything could happen. There's no longer, I mean, always, it's always kind of been like that, but even more so, like we didn't know Arya could bite it in that scene very easily. That could be the way they go. No one's read the book because it doesn't exist. And so you're, you're heightened. You're really, really anxious about that. Um, and that provides for a unique experience that I enjoyed. I think that the thing with Arya more than anything else is, and I did have a moment of panic when she sticks that dragon glass blade through the. I thought it was her white. that I got stabbed. Like, yeah, I thought it was her. And I was like, no. But like the thing that I love about that moment is it's very, very human for her. 
is we've spent the last, like, she's, don't get me wrong. She's not like a sociopathic robot like Bran is, but like we've spent the last six to seven episodes seeing a huge shift in her character to where she doesn't show fear. She doesn't show anxiety. She shows no desire for one person to win over another. Like, let's be all, let's all be honest at the end of last season, we weren't sure if she was going to kill Sansa or not. And I think that, that, that this last episode was a beautiful moment to show, especially after like it starts with her getting her head knocked into that wall. And you see this like maybe two second moment where she's like, squinting her eyes trying to figure out what's going on and then she realizes it and you see this moment of panic come over her and then the next couple of shots are her when she's inside the castle and she's terrified she's anxious she's she's i don't want to say she's back to the old aria but it's like she's she's a human girl again she's not this faceless man slash woman robot and like just like sidebarring off of that if you go back to season one and two I have always said that the Hound is one of my favorite characters, one of my all-time favorite characters, and he has always been as unbelievably soft. Well, I mean, as soft as the Hound can be toward Arya and Sansa. He has been that way since the very beginning. And that moment when Arya is like panicking and Beric is like, "Tell that to her," oh. and like the Hound is like, "Oh, screw this, let's go save her," like. It's just there are so everybody talks about the human moments of, la, of the last week's episode, but there were so many beautiful human moments in this week's episode that I think got overshadowed because it's such a big battle. Totally agree with you. So I, I guess that would that's actually one of my next questions was about character stuff. There's so much that happens in this episode without dialogue. Um, we have, you know, Bran and Theon in the God's Wood with some really touching moments. We have. You know, Arya and Melisandre with some prophecy stuff before the final um, big act that she is able to pull off. We have Sansa and Tyrion, which I personally have been shipping all day and probably will forever now. Um, there's Jorah and Danny. Why? Oh, don't start with me. I love those two. I love them. I love them both. I'm, they they're like their, strangely comfortable name? cousins. I'm... Oh, we do need to San- name them. Sansirian? Sansirian? I like it. Tirza? Oh, no, no. Since, oh, they're both... Sansirian sounds they're, like a they're dragon. They're pretty terrible. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So they can't be a couple if they don't have a good couple. <laughs> Stannister? Stannister. Stannister. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I get maybe Starnister. 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 Yeah, I don't know. Either way, they're all terrible. I love that both of them are brains and not brawn. I love that they're both struggling with that in this episode. They're struggling with their helplessness. Um, They're struggling with who needs them now. What's their worth if they can't be of use in this fight? And it, it just is so big of a deal to me when she tells him that he was the best of them. It's a compliment that Tyrion just... It's, he doesn't hear those things like in his entire life. He doesn't hear those things. And so for that to take place and it, it to be a completely non forced moment, no one else is making them feel that way or have that response to each other. And yes, of course, you know, we know that their emotions are all heightened and it's they think that they're about to die probably and that plays into it. And you always want to be with someone uh, and feel close and loved with someone when you're about to die. Well, I mean, not that I've experienced that, but I'm assuming, and from what we understand of uh, psychology. So it, it just, it's so touching. I think it's very sweet and tender. And I think that those two are 
force to be reckoned with, I will say. And I will say more about that later. But yeah, so we had them. We had Jorah and Danny. Did any of those particularly stick out to you guys, though? Uh, other than like San Santerian did for me. What else hit you on like the human character moments of this episode? Um, Bran and Theon was the one that really stuck out to me. It seems like the bad guys win a lot in this show. And to get a full redemption arc there from Theon, from just the person he was, to being told he's a good man, and what, you know, sacrificing his life for Bran, that was the one part of the episode that definitely had me in tears, um, just knowing just the hell that he went through to get back to where Bran could believe that about him, that he is a good man, was very powerful to me, and, uh... I'm going to stop talking about it because I might actually tear up a little (laughs) bit if I think about it much more. I won't say what I feel about Theon for fear of making you cry for other reasons. But I do think that it was an important, like Bran knew the importance of, of Theon knowing that he thought he was a good person or a good man. But let's not discount the fact that he was like, I'm going to tell you this because you're about to die. And I know you're about to die. So I'm going to let you die with at least a happy thought in your head. Wow, that's dark. That's like yeah, geez. really cynical. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, brand new. He's the three-eyed raven. It's not like he didn't know how this was going to end up. And he waited until Theon only had the Night King to battle to say it. What else can you take from that? Like, everybody shows up, and they're just waiting and staring at each other. And Bran's looking at everybody in the creepy way that he does. And then he's like, oh, hey, Theon, you're a good man. Now, now charge to your death. <laughs> Bye-bye now. <laughs> oh, your brand impression. Well, for the record, if you guys are there when I'm about to die, please tell me tell I'm you. a good man. No matter what. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. It'll mean a lot to me. I'll yeah, no joy. kidding. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that there were, I don't want to say human moments, but there were very some very impactful moments. Um, the Melisandre and Arya one was very impactful purely because it called, there were a lot of moments with Arya in this season that call all the way back to season one, and I absolutely love that. The stick him with a pointy end thing will always be one of my favorite things. And the fact that she said that to Sansa means a lot. Um, the fact that she used the dagger that was used back in season one means a lot. That dagger has traveled through multiple hands throughout the entire show. That dagger was used to, to almost s- to attempt to murder Bran. It and started then Bran a war. And Bran is the one that gave it to Arya. So it Bran started knew. A war, ended a war. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of this, like, uh, you know, as he said, the things we do for love. But, like, he, Bran gave this dagger to Arya, assuming he full well knew what she was going to use it for. What do we say to the god of death? And that was, that was when I was like, ugh. Because I miss Serio. I miss Serio so much. I will say, like, you guys are talking about a lot of heartfelt moments. And can I, like, the one character thing I took away from this episode more than anything else is how freaking useless is Danny without her dang dragons? Like, can we just talk about how apparently in the 17,000 years that Jorah has been pining after her, he never thought to give her a dang sword fighting lesson? The chick wielded it like like it was a heavy twig. She had no idea what the heck she was doing with it. She, she was so useless. She is useless. And she has become more and more useless as the show goes on. And I think that's part of where I've seen some fans who've been frustrated, wondering if that's maybe not how she would go in the books, because... She's clearly turned into more of a, I'm going to sit on my high horse and just give orders and let other people do the bidding for me. I've got this dragon, so I have this kind of all-powerful trump card. But she's kind she's, of been that way the whole time. But she's not like, smart about it. It's just her it. dragons are bigger now. So right. she just got more confident along with their size. Yeah, absolutely. And, and she just, 
yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Like, she is very much useless without them. And that's a big part of her problem. Like and you're what, a Khaleesi. You're with a bunch of Dothraki fighters. And nobody ever thought to teach you how to handle a, even just like a tiny sword. You don't even have to handle like a broadsword. But just anything. She like, she waits for Jorah to get stabbed like four times. And then she's like, oh, wait, I got it. Let me get him. <laughs> like, Tyrion and Sansa did more. And all they did was scurry around in the crypts. And they still did more than Danny did this whole episode. Yep. I don't think we're going to be seeing a lot more of her personally. But we shall <gasps> see. Um, Yeah, who knows? Who knows how that's going to go? Well, let's let's start let's start at the beginning real quick and kind of walk our way just through some of this without we don't have to take too long to do it but we started off this episode with that initial kind of exploration through winterfell of what our characters were doing to get ready for the battle and then we quickly get this shot we quickly get this shot of melisandre coming out of nowhere um up to jorah and the dothraki horde and she is asking them, like, about, she's wanting to put fire on their swords. It is a very intense moment. Uh, it leads to, obviously, them charging into the unknown blackness. That was one of my favorite cinematic shots of the entire battle, just watching those fiery swords go off into that cloud and kind of flicker out. It also, I think, really set the tone for just what they were in for as far as the army's strength, the White Walkers, how quickly they destroyed the entire Dothraki horde. Now, Deus Ex Machina Wise is a little, of course, lucky that Jorah is one of the only people to come rushing back. I was back just gonna say, on the a minute horse. the battle starts to turn, he just turns around and heads back and he's like, nope. Yeah, and so there's that, but, you know, I, really liked Melisandre's inclusion in this episode. And I buy it. Um, she's a magical character, and I think that that allows us to just believe that she would know what's happening, even though she's been banished and not in Winterfell for so long. She would understand the timeline. We believe in her religion because we've seen the actions that come from it. And so for her to show up and play such a major role, it's something she's been doing throughout the entire series. Like, this has been her whole intention, was to find Azor High, right? And see this prophecy fulfilled. That's what she's, like, going for. And I thought it was cool to see her big moments. I love when she lit the trench on fire for them. That was awesome. Um, I liked that both of the interactions with Grey Worm... It wasn't really an interaction, but we got to see him having to make the decision to go to her for help, which was a very hard one for him. We got to see Jorah having to accept her help, which was obviously not easy for him either. Uh, but they knew that they needed it. And so I really liked that uh, aspect of the show. Did you guys like Melisandre, or did it not work for you? I mean, she's crazy, but at the end of the day, I love that uh, at the very end of the episode... Uh, the Onion King, as I like to call him, our favorite smuggler. Um, you know, at the very beginning, she walks in and she goes up to him and she's like, don't worry, Sir Davos. Like, I will, like, there's no need to behead me because I plan on being dead by dawn. And then at the very end of the episode, when you see her walking out of the gates, you see him run up behind her. His hand is already on the sword and ready as she, like, falls and floats away into dust. And so it's like, 
he was fully ready to be like, oh, it's dawn. You're not dead yet. So I get to do the honors. And it's just like there's this back and forth between and that's been going on since what season two, I think is either the end of season one or the beginning of season two, I think, is when we first meet Stannis. Um, but like, I mean, I don't think any one of us will ever forgive her for Shireen. And that's nope. something that I, I just can't get past whether or not you believe in her Lord of light or not. It's just, that was, it's sad, but it's like, she burned a bunch of other men at the stake, but I can't forgive her for Shireen. It's always different as a child. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like her walking out there was her evidence that, I don't know, maybe I could be wrong. It felt to me like she couldn't forgive herself for Shireen and that she was taking responsibility for it. So I liked that into her arc, if that's indeed what it was meant to be like. And yeah, I don't know. There seems to be a lot of in the last couple seasons of people just like showing up at the right time. But for the most part, that's all made the story better. So I don't mind, I guess. Well, you know, after that happens, we get kind of this little arc with Liana Mormont. Um, that is pretty sad. <laughs> Are you crying or laughing? I hope you're crying. I'm, I'm like whimpering to myself. Okay. <laughs> we get to see her being a real badass and a, a strong, uh, I thought she was a really strong leader. I liked getting to see her bark orders as far as like from a command standpoint, she was in charge. She was not shied away from that moment. And, when she pretty much knew that they were beat by this giant, she, it was very, a lot akin to what John did at the end of the episode, um, where it's just like, you know what, I'm just going to shout you to death. She just runs at this giant white screaming at it. Of course, it picks her up and she gets the opportunity to stab it in the eye and kill it before she dies. But it did remind me a lot of John's moment later where he just can't seem to get away from Viserion. And so he finally just turns and he's like, just fed up and just yells at him. Like he's going to yell the dragon to death or something or scare it. I don't know what his intention was there. But yeah, with uh, Liana, her death was, I think, was it the first one? Yeah, it's the, f- or no, I, Dolores Ed would be the first death. Yeah. Yeah. I Which, would say, no, she was the next B character. I don't know that his death was that impactful. It was more than anything. It was like, Sam, this is your fault. Why are you out here? Stop thinking you're better than you are and get your butt to the crypts because you're causing more problems. He stole some stuff, Aaron. He should be able to be out there. He stole a lot of books. He was the one. Yeah, he stole a lot of books books from the Citadel. He's a rap scallion. He needs to be (laughs) out there on the battle. You hooligan. I, I just, it was sad because there were so many people that it seems like died because Sam was always on the brink of getting killed and they were trying mm-hmm. to protect him. Um, and I love Sam. He's absolutely one of my all time favorite characters in this series, but this was not a good time for him to try and act bigger than he was. Um, and that part of the, part of why I respected Tyrion and Sansa as well is because they understood that mm-hmm. and they went where they could be out of the way and not causing a problem for others. Well, I feel like Sansa understood that. Tyrion definitely didn't. Tyrion was bitter boots about the fact that he was like, oh, so you're hiding me down here because of my brain power? Oh, my brain's too big? I guess I could use my brain as a weapon on the battlefield. (laughs) Like, he was bitter boots about it. And then he was like, oh, Sansa, let's have a non-romantic sweet moment in the crypts surrounded by dead bodies. Your impression (laughs) of him makes me think of Tyrion as... um, 
Stewie from Family Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, once we get uh, Mormont's death, there's a pretty big gap between that and the next one that we see. Um, And this is where we get into the whole survival horror, what I like to call, section with Arya. Did that work for you guys? That was pretty long. Um, There were some real tonal differences because we moved from outside and this overwhelming force of whites that could not be stopped, this loud, just pounding noises from them to like dead silence and them just like tiptoeing around in this weird inner building with lots of hallways. And I think it provided great drama and great suspense um, did it feel like it fit for you guys in the episode? I thought it was terrifying. I enjoyed it. Just the, I don't know, the fear. At that point, I believe they hadn't quite, like, totally overrun the walls. So just there being just a few in there. It didn't feel like it shouldn't have been that way. It didn't feel out of place, I don't think. And I was, I don't know, I was pretty terrified the whole time. And then she stabbed that one. And it was super gross, among the grossest things I've seen in a while. Yeah, I liked, I thought that part was maybe the most effective part of the episode. I would agree. I thought it was very uh, cleverly done when they did it. Um, you know, they didn't do it in the beginning to where they could ease into the battle. Like, they started off hard and they gave you a reprieve. So it was like a little mini intermission. They gave you a reprieve from the noise and the chaos of battle, but they didn't give you a reprieve from the suspense. And I think that's what was super key there, is I feel like if they had just had Arya pull a Melisandre where she was literally just chilling in a room, keeping warm by a fire, not doing anything, listening to other people die. Like that would have been completely different if it was just like her just taking a break from the battle versus her still fighting for survival as she wove her way through her childhood home. And I think it's really interesting that they decided to do it that way. Cause it's like, she is definitely no longer a child. And that was probably the last time she actually ran through those halls. And so I think it was very, very specific, like very selectively done the way that they did it. And um, I really think that you should watch the inside the Game of Thrones things, Aaron. I think that'll that you'll really enjoy them because he talks about how he that even that white that um, ended up like hearing her and squatting down by the table. Yeah, when the, the blood drops. Yeah, the director even talked about how he chose a very specific actor for that role because he knew how unbelievably flexible that actor was and how the way that he wanted the way that the white would move to try to find Arya to be very specific. Um, so I think that it was very, it was very smartly done by putting it well into the episode instead of near the beginning. Yeah, I can see that totally. And I, you know, it worked for me. It was super effective. Both times I watched the episode, I really, really enjoy that section. I think it, it just reminded me so much of playing video games and, and being in that like edge of my seat waiting for the jump scare to happen. Um, and this time it was such a bigger deal because it felt like so final if something was to happen to her at that time. And of course it leads to the hound and Barrack uh, running into <laughs> her and ultimately having to protect her. Um, Barrack literally making himself into a barricade 
against the wall wow. with his arm. Sorry. How long have you waited to use that? No, I, I saw it in a meme. I can't take credit. It was like it was like Hodor barricade, and yeah, it was great. Oh my um, gosh! Oh no. my gosh! Sorry, awesome. I'm sorry, but it's beautiful. And I, listen, I love Barrack so much. I think he is an awesome character, and essentially, what has taken place here is that he has been raised from the dead six times (laughs) all to bring him to this moment at this time to do this task to make this sacrifice and for him to be completely accepting of that is a powerful thing and i i love stories like this and fantasy specifically because they do show us so much sacrifice that goes into the heroes being able to do the hero thing. It's not just the hero killing the Night King with her dagger. Like, so many people had to do things to get her to that point and to make that possible, and we get to feel the weight of those losses. And so it was a huge moment for me, again, knowing that he's not coming back now, Melisandre's not going to raise him, like, it's done. Um, it was, it's kind of when I think it shifted for me in my mind and I thought, oh, all right, something's up. Like now I know areas got a bigger role to play in this episode and, and in this story than <laughs> maybe I might've predicted previously. You mean like the time you said that you wanted her to die? I didn't say I wanted yeah, her to like die. <laughs> when you're sitting there at your TV yelling, die, little girl, die. It wasn't quite how it went down, but for those, cats. for those that don't follow me on Facebook, about two days before this episode, I did post Facebook. If a Stark is going to die this weekend, I hope it's Arya. And the worst. The I mean, that is like, worst. yeah, is absolutely I, the worst yeah. hot take I've ever made. And I deserve all the shame that I get from it. Um, on your comment about Beric, I think it's really important just to note is that he was not Arya's hero. He was the Hound's hero. That Ooh. whole moment for me had nothing to do with Arya. The only reason why Beric was still alive was because the Hound would not be there without him. The Hound would not have done what he did last season without Beric. The Hound would not be this redeemed character without Beric. The things that Melisandre is talking about that are leading back to this exact moment are the fact that the Hound was here to help Arya. Like, he would not have charged back into that battle if Beric had not pointed out that Arya needed him. Like, Beric, yes, he was a hero to us all. But in particular, he was the Hound's hero. Mm, That was that that heroic moment for me. I like that. So after that, we kind of end up, I think, moving towards, you know, John's got this complete arc where he seems to be just running towards the godswood and never getting there. Uh, It's really depressing to, to see like him not being able to make any progress. And you start wondering, like, what's going to happen at this point? Because We've been conditioned to believe that John is our hero and John is the one that all of this is meant to be running through. John has to kill the Night King. And when we see him meet with the Night King and have that stare down moment, I don't know if you guys saw it, but the Night King actually like smirks. It is this cocky, completely overconfident moment where he looks at John and just wrinkles up his lip and then raises all of the dead to come right back at John. And it was super depressing because they had just started to kind of 
stem the tide and we had panned around Winterfell and seen a lot of our heroes with just pounds and mounds and mounds of dead bodies. And then they all just stand right back up, including, including Lyanna Mormont. Um, Which was my first moment where I was like, first of all, how dare you? <laughs> right. Like, how dare you to little Mormont? <laughs> yeah. And so, I, I mean, it was one of those kind of dual things where that comes right after this Arya stuff. And I think we start to see the shift and understand that this is not going to be John's moment. Like John's not going to play the part that we thought he's going to do to play. Um, and we get Danny coming down to try and save him so that he can get to the godswood, which leads to the scene of Jorah and her um, encircled by whites, him trying to fight them off. I, I got to say, I thought it was really, really moving. What I appreciated the most about the Danny and Jorah scene was just that there's just not that dialogue. It's all facial expression. It's all body movement. We know what's happening. We understand that this is a man that is experienced unrequited love. And that's been kind of the defining aspect of his character. You call him forever in the friend zone, Aaron. And that's exactly what it was. This woman who would never love him back, but I yeah, really, she loved him. She did love him, but not the way that he wanted yeah. her to. But I, I just really like when characters get the end that they desire on their terms. And I can't see Jorah wanting to die any other way than defending and protecting the woman he loves. And so for that, it was really moving. And I thought beautiful, even in its sadness. You did skip over like a really important point of tension, though, when Danny rescues John because he's just like, I'm going to charge through all these bodies that are kind of moving around me. And all of the whites start attacking the dragon. I thought we were going to lose another one. And my goodness, I cared about that far more than almost any other character that could have died. If we had lost another dragon, I would sue HBO. Well, we didn't know for sure that Rygal was okay until some people saw a trailer for the next episode. So, Well, when he like <laughs> lay, like he willingly flew down and laid down next to Jorah, when that little like soft cry whine that oh, that's came true, out of yeah. him. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Oh, it was like a it, puppy that just knows like, uh. Yeah, well, it it was very much like a a dog or a cat that would cuddle up with you when it knows that you're in a moment of pain, uh, wanting to kind of make her feel better and and help her through that. But yeah, that was a really big death. You know, after that, we get the Bran and Theon stuff. Um, We get the Sansa and Tyrion moment with that. I really just again, I just latched onto. Now earlier when. She tell or he tells her we should have stayed married. That hit me on a very deep level. <laughs> um, I just think that it was such, I don't know. There's something so pure about it. And, and it shows up here when he kisses her hand. It's so innocent for a man that usually talks like he thinks nothing of women, but whores. It's so respectful, so tender and caring I don't know how you guys didn't love it, but it there's this flickering lights and this piano score and it hits and she pulls out that knife. He takes it and he's going to go around the corner and kill him and, and try to protect them. And it's just so sweet. I so, would like to just amend one thing that you said. Tyrion does not think of women as whores. And I mean this very, very literally, like, please, women of this podcast, do not come at me for this comment. But he thinks of whores as whores. 
That's fair. Yeah, no, you're yeah, absolutely I was like, right. You're absolutely not, right. He is I, very respectful of women. Not all women, yes. But, yeah, but women that are literally prostitutes and are sex workers, he thinks of as sex workers. I, I guess I should say, when it comes to Tyrion's relationships, I don't feel like he has had one that is as pure or innocent as his one with Sansa. You know, going well, back to the days of them being married, he didn't want that. He didn't want to... Because she's a child. Right. And I think a creepy that, child bride. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true too. Yes. Um, I just like it. I love the way that they've come to this point And I thought I was unexpected for me. I think the thing that I like about that line of we should have stayed married, honestly, is because both of them would have just been doing their duty and they know they would have been good friends. And I think that to me is why, like when you were like, I just, I want them to get back together. I'm like, there were no romantic feelings for them. They were just very respectful of one another. And both of them are so used to getting zero respect from their family that the fact that somebody else could appreciate, like you said, the brains over brawn and could appreciate just someone's general existence, I think was just such a change of pace for both of them. And I feel like what I stand about them is their mutual respect for one another more than anything else. That's fair. I, I'm glad you see it that way, because that's a lot closer to liking it than you were at the beginning of this episode, it sounded like. I mean, I don't hate them. <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. It's just, just, just let me have my feelings. Jeremy likes them. I like it. I I want them to be on the, I want, I want him to be sitting on her lap on the Iron Throne at the very end of the last episode. Oh, give me that. Yes, that would be amazing. She's got the creepiest mental image. That's <laughs> a fantastic uh, For the record, like a, like a creepy Benjamin Button kind of thing, where he's all like, old and wrinkly, he's 40 years older than her. Oh, gosh. I love it. Well, you know, we get kind of this, all this up to Arya's big moment, and I'm curious how it played for you. Was it the impactful final death of the night king that you wanted um was it satisfying i guess is really the main question i would ask jeremy you you can go first it was cool like as far as how it was shot and again the we've aaron's talked about it a couple times but the little thing about how they made the episode afterwards showed some cool stuff about that scene and so it was cool seemed a little sudden i guess I guess I expected the night. I I don't know. I did not expect them to wrap up the whole winter is coming in this episode. And I'm not sure that that necessarily works doing it so quickly and having that threat taken away. But as far as, yeah, it was cool that Aria did it. And I like the the scene overall. Aaron, did it work for you? Uh, Yes, it was super predictable. Like it was one of those things where if you go back, I think it was last season where when Arya finally gets back to Winterfell and she's like reunited with Sansa and that awesome scene where her and Brienne are battling and like just sparring with one another, you actually see Arya use that hand dagger trick in that moment where she has the dagger in one hand and Brienne blocks that hand. So she drops the dagger to another and that's how she gets her power stance and wins the fight. And so like there were moments that are, I would say relatively predictable but I watched the episode three times and I got goosebumps every single time. And I think part of that has to do with more about the way that it was shot and the way that they built everything up with the score, because everything is all musically built behind. And even the director in the inside game of Thrones thing specifically says like, 
they let me break all the rules for making, but for directing this episode because the way that he used a score is unlike any other episode in Game of Thrones history. And so, um, and the score was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. At times, I thought there were a little too much of the strings, but other than that, it was a very beautifully done score. Um, and then there's that moment where that White Walker general feels that gust of air next to him, and like all you see is him just like slightly turn his head. And then the next shot is just complete silence while Arya flies through the air. And it's just, it's just like, it's still a beautifully shot moment. Um, But I agree, like I said, at the beginning of the episode, look, I thought that the Game of Thrones should have come first and the Great War with the White Walker should have been the close of the season. So it feels like um, an early wrap up that was very quickly. I don't want, it's really hard to say quickly dispersed because technically it's been like eight seasons of buildup. So it really wasn't quick. But it just, I think none of us were expecting the White Walker storyline to end in this episode. So it feels quicker than it actually was. And that's just because none of us were expecting it. Yep. I think you're spot on. And if it, if I felt like you and I wanted more of that, I would be very disappointed. And so I, I do understand folks who feel that way. Absolutely for sure. Because I get it. Like if that's the storyline that you really wanted to see played out in a lot of detail, you just don't get it. And it kind of is anticlimactic in a lot of ways. And it's weird to say that because it's a really cool moment, but it just feels like so easy. Like, okay, you poked him and now it's all over. Just everything dies. Uh, whereas, you know, they were completely overrun. I will point to this and say all of the Dothraki are dead. Like, all of the Unsullied are dead. 80-90% of Winterfell soldiers are dead. You don't you know. know that. You uh, don't know that. Oh, we panned around. One of the most harrowing, haunting moments of this whole episode is right when that, when he dies and they start cutting around the battlefield and you just see all of the zombies and the walkers, like, dropping. And all you see left standing are the very few characters that we know and love. And... Believe me, there's not much. There's there's very, very few of them that are remaining. They are just surrounded by dead bodies. I refuse uh, to accept that. And so, Because if I was in that battle, I would be hiding under dead bodies so that nobody would find me. Well, those people, aren't gonna be, those people aren't going to be much use in the coming fight either, just so you know. So They're very sneaky. They could be snipers in uh, some way or another. Oh isn't that how John got through the Battle of the Bastards? I mean, he wasn't hiding, but... Buried he, under he was like snuffed, lots, almost lots dead. dead. Yeah, I don't people. think that was on purpose. <laughs> hey, it works. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a really just, oh gosh, gut-wrenching scene when you simultaneously get the high of realizing they've won, but at the, at the same time you're seeing what it cost and the loss, and you can't help but think about like, okay, now what? What's next? And so that's my question for you guys. So what is next? Like, where do we go from here and what's going to happen and what's your hype level for what's going to happen? And Aaron, I'll let you kick it off. I want elephants. I want the elephants that Cersei you wanted. want the elephants. That's all I want. Um, no, I mean, I think at this point it's really going to be a lot more, I guess it's, we're so used to big battles being the denouement, the climax that we're all expecting this huge war and this huge battle. And it's like that now it means that we're going to get one to two more episodes of a lot of snide passive aggressive remarks where everybody is playing the 
like the dagger in your back game instead of a dagger in your chest where you can see it coming right. Does that make sense? Like, I know that's a weird way to describe it, but like the dagger in your back versus dagger in your chest to me is like, Cersei's all about the dagger in your back. She's all about the poison, the, the slides S that you don't see coming. Um, and with Euron, who I want to headbutt until there's no head left, like her being like, you have to earn a queen, but PS come have sex with me right now. And like, we all, like, I truly did not think that she was pregnant with Jamie's baby. I thought that she was just using it to manipulate him again. But then when she made, when she like screwed Euron that quickly, I was like, okay, she's doing that to cover up the fact that she's pregnant with Jamie's baby because now she just secretly wants Braun to kill Jamie and Tyrion. So it's like, what's going to come next is what does Braun choose? Does he choose money or does he choose loyalty to both of those people again? Because he's liked and enjoyed the company of both of those people before. Cersei now has paid him to effectively kill those people. So it's just going to be a lot more of the, uh, like, it's just going to be a bigger game of chess now, a quiet game of chess, I think, in the next one to two episodes. Whereas we just had a huge freaking battle. So it's going to be like coming off of that adrenaline high of the last battle, I think, instead of it continuing to just push the limit for the rest of the episode or the rest of the season, excuse me. What do you think, Jeremy? Where is it going to go? I think I disagree. I guess I kind of see Cersei trying to strike before they have a chance to, I don't know, re regroup. I mean, they are, like you said, they pan that battlefield and there are not very many people left. Sure, they have dragons, but she's got quite a lot of people ready to fight for her. So I could definitely see there being a surprise battle that maybe people, and maybe, maybe we see the number of deaths that a lot of people were expecting last week. Maybe we see that in this next week coming up or the week after. I really don't know. I feel like every time I predict something, the other thing happens. So, well, what um, do you want to happen? What do I want to happen? I want Sansa to be sitting on the Iron Throne with Tyrion on her lap. No, I'm just kidding. I want I want Jamie to kill Cersei. <laughs> I want Jon Snow to be on the Iron Throne. I feel like between those two there's going to between him and Danny there's going to be something there's there's going to be words and I don't think Danny's going to make it and uh, you to- if you told me that before the season started that I would want that to be the case that she didn't make it I would have told you you're crazy but I do feel she's becoming kind of a wild card that needs to be taken out of the picture so why can't um, she just learn from her mistakes like every other wild card in the past Theon got a redemption arc why can't Danny Okay, if she does that, that's cool. But she seems to think that she knows better than everybody else. But So did Theon. I, yeah, that's true. He took Winterfell with 20 men and then ended up yeah. getting his bits chopped off because of it. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I guess if she has the equivalent of her bits chopped off, whatever that is for... Never mind. I don't want to go there, but um, <laughs> I, would be, I would be fine with Danny in her current state. I don't... I can't see there being a redemption for her i would love it if there were she's been my one of my favorites for the entire show but uh she feels uh dangerous i guess over the last few episodes i think that one of the like you said that you want you want jamie to kill cersei and the thing that i keep thinking about is while i would love for Arya to wear jamie's face to kill cersei because i think that would be like the most beautiful but somewhat predictable moment but it would just be really freaking cool is I would be very interested if Jamie one could bring himself to kill Cersei, but then secondarily he would not only be the Kingslayer but the Queenslayer, and I don't know how well he would wear that. Hmm. 
Yeah. I, I, I would also accept Cersei kill, uh, Bron, or is it Bron? Who's the, he's who's the guy? Bron is the cell sword. Okay. Yeah. I, I would also live with him actually killing Jamie and Brienne going ahead and offing Cersei. That would be pretty cool too. Yeah, I, I could see a situation where some of that plays out as well. I mean, either way, I think Cersei's not going to make it. I, I don't see Danny making it either. I don't think that there's time for a redemption arc. I think that she is going to go after John, and decisions are going to have to be made, and she's going to have to be put down. I think she's not is, a dog. I, you know what? She is a ruler that is out of control and wants nothing but power and for how people is to she bow out of to her. Aside from the Tarleys. Aside from the Tarleys? You you can't just say aside from the Tarleys. I can, because it's not her father. She isn't just burning every single man alive. She gave them a choice. They made a stance. I'm not saying I agree with her choice, but what I'm saying is that's one instance. If after this battle, you have no idea how guilty she's... You saw the look on Sam's face when Mm -hmm. she had to tell him that? I, right, that's true. If, If there's a difference, yes, but the reactions we have seen from her with Sansa... When Sansa wants to declare and ask questions about what happens in the North. When... I think that after this battle, Danny will give up the North. I really have a feeling that oh, she'll let the North nice stay sovereign. Her. Yeah, what's left of it. That's I mean, so so yeah. kind. So she won't no. benefit from having it anyway. <laughs> I know. I, well, we'll see. I think the point is that for all of us, it's going to be fascinating now to see what happens. And, and that's what I'm excited for, is that chess game. Because we have these elephants in the room that have not been hashed out between Danny and John and this, this heritage and Sansa and her belief that the North should still remain sovereign. And we have Cersei who's just sitting there chilling with her army Mm -hmm. waiting for this carnage to be done and no one to come challenge her anymore. We actually have Bronn still on his way to kill Tyrion and Jaime. We don't know. Well, last we left him, he was still in the castle. We actually don't know what he decided or where he is. This is true, but like we are led to believe that Braun is on his way to kill them. So, yeah, I mean, there's just so many twists and turns that can still happen. I think that I've said this before on social media. I don't love the face stealing thing. I'm sure it's probably going to come into play somewhere. Look, we're not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it because we're so because wrong. we differ. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't love it. But, you know, I feel like it'll come into play somewhere. I Some of the Starks are going to have to die mm-hmm. or... They aren't. And this is the the point I wanted to get to, because Jeremy, you had a thought on this. And it's something that I think kind of needs to be called out at this point. Has the show gotten to the point where with things like Arya killing the Night King the way that it happened, is it giving us moments that we want instead of giving us the realistic historical type accuracy that we have been used to seeing is it starting to operate on fan service because it's self-aware and knows what the audience is looking for i think it would be hard to say absolutely no it's not giving us fan service because i believe that there's a lot of stuff that fans have sort of pined for that you're seeing happening um, and that really, like I said earlier, that's the reason I guess I wasn't expecting to see anyone major bite it this week. But I do think that they might. I I don't know. I do kind of. I guess I trust the showrunners at this point, based on what they've done so far, to not necessarily um, let that affect the way they end the series. So while I didn't have much suspense going into Sunday, I do think anything goes for the next few weeks 
Um, I, I'm sure they will give us some fan service. I know there'll be the Clegane Bowl probably coming up, and there'll be some stuff like that that everybody wants to see. But I don't know. I kind of feel like maybe they'll go out of their way to make sure something that maybe people aren't expecting is what happens to put somebody on, on the Iron Throne. What about you, Aaron? Do you think that there's at all a level of fan service that is seeping into the way the showrunners are wrapping things up? I don't know if I would necessarily say it's specific to the way that they're wrapping things up, but I think that when they started to really pull away from the books and create their own tales, they did it with the intention of weaving the unexpected into what fans love the most about the show. I think that it's important to note that, like I said before, there were a lot of things that have happened this season that were hinted back in season one. So we can't really say that they like everybody's like, oh, people just gave, you know, Arya and Gendry um, a shot because everybody wanted it to happen. Uh, Arya was checking out that blacksmith's VOD back in season one. Like it's it's been a long time coming. And then like it's just I, I think that there is a mixture of both within this. But I do think that they they're they're brilliant writers that are just letting the story flow to where it can and interviews with the writers and the directors have said, like, we had we we knew that we wanted to weave this tale from season X or season Y. So it's it's really not, I think, as much about what fans want, more as fans have woven themselves into these stories so much that they can see where these lines are headed. Because there are people, myself included, that do full rewatches before seasons come on to where they are realizing that things that have happened back in season one are hinted at in season four and six and seven. And so it's things like that to where you're, you're connecting the dots the way that the, the writers wanted you to, to begin with. And it may feel like at that point, Oh, they're doing this for the fans, but it could also just be, no, they're doing this to close out that storyline that they developed six seasons prior. Yeah. Very good point. Um, I, I see it a mixture of, of both. It feels sometimes like, they're trying to give people what they want versus what might naturally happen to me. And I, and I don't, it's not taking away from my enjoyment of the story, but when, when I see a horde of white walkers rushing on the battlefield and everybody except two or three main characters getting trampled and those two main characters standing and just looking to their side as the white walker horde, you know, runs right by them and never touches them that's an unrealistic moment that it doesn't feel like the game of thrones we started with feels like the game of thrones we started with would trample somebody who was standing there in the front line not just let them watch it and not have anything happen to them and so and well i would sorry the only thing the only thing that i rebuttal with and i'm only saying this because i'm doing a rewatch right now passively while i'm watching it is back in season like two when Sam first sees his first ever White Walker. He's cowering behind a rock and a bunch of them just walk right past him. The White Walker general's on his horse, looks him dead in the face, and then just keeps on going. So they have done that, at, I think, at least two to three times within the series where the White Walkers are controlled by a higher power and they see the end game and they know what it is and they're not going to worry themselves with one or two characters i i see what you're saying though with the fact that they're main characters that we've all grown attached to so the fact that they weren't they just happened to be coincidentally the people that got back i definitely see what you're saying there but the white walkers have done that in the past 
Absolutely. I, I think it is more than anything. It is just, I think it's a natural progression of just what happens when you tell a story this way and you give us all of these amazing characters and you run out of time to tell your story and you get down to three or four episodes and we know people have to die. And so we're looking for it. And so we're, our senses are up and we're expecting it. Whereas if this same episode happened in season five, I wouldn't necessarily be expecting all of these characters to bite the dust. You know what I mean? Like I would be much more forgiving of it. And I think that's where fans have to keep that in mind as they're watching. They have to just take it for the storytelling that's there and not project what they want. And that, and that's why it bugs me too. When people are like, Oh, there weren't enough deaths. I just don't understand that feeling at all. Um, Tell the house of Mormont that there weren't enough deaths. Yeah. Oh, right. Hannah, there is none. Jorah, there's none that, left. That was, that was like the, to me, like when you said like what deaths hit you the hardest, like, yeah, Liana Mormont was really sad because we all grew to love just such a strong, amazing woman. And I cannot wait to like name my future daughter Liana. But like for me, what was so upsetting about that was the end of the Mormont house is that's it. There are no more. And Sam had this beautiful moment where he gave Jorah his house sword because Sam's the last Charlie. And like it's just it's it's moments like that to me that are far more heartbreaking is like that is the end of an entire generation of people. Beautiful. Well, we're going to leave it on that somber note. So listeners, if you enjoyed this and you want more, please let us know. Uh, you can hit us up on social media individually or in the feeling film Facebook group, or you can email us at feelinfilm at gmail.com. Um, if you want to hear us try and finish out this season with more of these, we might consider it, but you'll have to let us know if that's something you're interested in. This was a lot of fun, though, guys. I really enjoyed it. Aaron, Jeremy, thank you both for an awesome conversation. Can't wait for next week. See what happens. We shall talk soon.